Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Thursday Morning Report. This was a project I did a few years back in partnership with Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, where I volunteered as an engineer, host, and producer. Enjoy this one-hour interview program that went out live over the radio on KZYX. If you like what you are hearing, you can check out my current podcast, The Shift with Doug McKenty, on your favorite podcast hosting site, or find out more on Facebook and YouTube at The Shift with Doug McKenty. I'm also on Twitter at McKenty. If you want to support the program, look up The Shift on Patreon, or find it on the web at www.theshiftnow.com and click on subscribe. Subscribers receive access to full-length feature episodes of The Shift, as well as the membership forum, where members can engage in discussions and participate in the evolution of the show. Stay tuned for this episode of the Thursday Morning Report from KZYX Radio in Mendocino County, California. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Thursday Morning Report. I'll be your host for the next hour. My name is Doug McKenty. Uh, this morning, I'll be speaking with Dr. Rianne Eisler. She's the author of The Chalice and the Blade, as well as The Real Wealth of Nations. She now works with the Center for Partnership Studies. Let's get her on here. Good morning, Dr. Eisler. Are you there? I certainly am. Very good. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Well, I'm very happy to be on your show. I, uh, I first encountered your work when I read the book The Myth of the Goddess um, by Anne Baring. And she really described in archaeological terms what you were describing, the chalice and the blade. And the chalice and the blade was referenced in that book about a hundred times, I think. So I had to go pick it up. (laughs) And uh, I just thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I really appreciate the way that you uh, have been able to view reality in terms of this partnership and dominator continuum that you talk about. Can we, can we kind of discuss that in terms of, of what you were thinking as you were creating it when you were writing The Chalice and the Blade? Well, it became evident to me that we are really stuck when we try to look at what's happening in our lives, in the world, through the conventional lenses of right versus left, religious versus secular, Eastern versus Western, uh, etc. Because, you know, you can have terrible conditions, terrible regimes, uh, terrible oppression, violence on both sides, right? Mm -hmm. And if we're trying to answer the question, which is really the question that underlies my work, which is what are the conditions that can support a more equitable, more caring this violent way of living, uh, they're useless. In fact, as a colleague of mine has said, they're really weapons of mass distraction because they fragment our consciousness. And so when I undertook my research, I really was looking for patterns, cross-culturally and historically, uh, that could answer that question, and there were no names. Uh, for them, because I kept seeing them. I kept seeing two very different contrasting configurations. So I called one the domination system or dominator system, and the other one the partnership system. And as you say, it's a continuum. It's always a matter of degree. Now, one of the um, distinguishing features from my method, uh, which is the study of relational dynamics, was that I draw from a much larger database than conventional studies, uh, one that doesn't just focus on what's conventionally um, looked at in these studies, which is politics and 
economics as conventionally defined, but also includes where we all live, our family and other intimate relations, and equally important, uh, one that includes the whole of humanity, both its female and male halves, because I don't have to tell you, most of most studies are uh, quite aptly called the study of man, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and, and also uh, a much longer time span, all the way uh, from where we are today back into our prehistory. And the configuration uh, that was very, very obvious, of course, um, was that there are, that if we connect the dots in a different way, uh, that includes uh, the status of women, the situation of children, uh, that includes uh, our, as I said, family and other intimate relations, you can begin to see the whole picture. And um, the configuration of the domination system, of course, is one that I think we're all very familiar with, except we haven't used the name, which is these top-down rankings uh, in both the family and the state or tribe, very authoritarian, rigid male dominance, which is a very important component, and also a, an acceptance, even idealization, of a high degree of violence. And you can see that in tribal societies like the Maasai. You can see it in uh, agrarian societies, uh, be they religious or secular. For example, the Taliban are a very good example. Um, and you can also see it in highly um, technologically developed societies such as Hitler's Nazi Germany. Uh, on the other side of the spectrum, the partnership configuration, uh, you can see again in tribal societies like the Tedurai, um, in agrarian societies like the Minangkabau, um, in Nordic nations today, and of course in the you know Sweden, Finland, Norway, and also in many of the trends uh, in in the world that we've been trying to push forward, which is a more democratic and egalitarian structure in both the family and the state or tribe, a more equal partnership between the female and male halves of humanity, and uh, trying to leave behind traditions of violence. Uh, for example, in the in Sweden, Norway, Finland, they pioneered the first laws uh, that say that it is against the law to use physical discipline against children. They have a very strong men's movement to disentangle so-called masculinity from its uh, uh, association with domination, with violence. Uh, the first peace studies came out of the Nordic nations. These are not coincidences. These are patterns, configurations. And if you look at the world through these lenses, everything from sexuality to spirituality, from politics to economics, falls into place. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the interesting thing uh, to me about about this uh, dominator-partnership continuum. Uh, I, I think something that happened to me as I was growing up and, and being educated, I had this idea of a, a real linear sense of history and that we must be getting smarter all the time. Like, there's this idea of progress. Uh, I think now that that's even a, a characteristic of, a, of a, a dominator society, just how you think that everything is always getting better all the time instead of looking at things from the point of view of this continuum. 
Um, and, and what ended up happening to me is that as I got, you know, I, I got into college and I started studying some Greek philosophy, and I was like, wait a minute, these guys are, are pretty smart. Uh, and then getting into archaeology a little bit, you, you realize that the mythologies uh, from 5,000 years ago were, were really profound, uh, amazing ways of looking at things. And it's just given me this sense of history uh, that's different from uh, this, the linear concepts of progress that had kind of driven my thinking before. Can you comment about that? Absolutely, because uh, The Chalice and the Blade, Sacred Pleasure, um, other books I've written really look at history in terms of the underlying tension uh, between the partnership and domination systems as two underlying configurations, two underlying human possibilities, if you will. And uh, it becomes very fascinating because what you then see, well, let's take modern history, for example. What we really see actually is an upward movement, but it's not linear. It, it, it has been, I mean, at least in the West, we have seen a, a, a series of spirals, upward spirals with dips. I mean, if you look at Western history from starting with the uh, 16th and 17th century, certainly from the Enlightenment, I know that there's a, it's become fashionable to sort of say the Enlightenment was bad, but the Enlightenment, without it, we wouldn't have any of the things that we take for granted. Uh, the whole concept of human rights came out of the mm -hmm. Enlightenment. The concepts of uh, really representative government, of really um, social justice, economic justice, uh, but, uh, and in fact, if you look at modern history that way, you see that every single progressive social movement has challenged traditions of domination, mm -hmm. whether it was the so-called rights of man movement of the, you know, that started in the Enlightenment, challenging the so-called divinely ordained right of kings to rule over their subjects, the feminist movement, challenging the so-called divinely ordained right of men to rule over the women and children, yeah. in the, quote, castles of their homes, all the way to the economic justice movements, to, to the environmental movement, challenging man's once hallowed conquest of nature. But as I said, we've had dips, we've had regressions. Uh, I was born into one of those. I was born in Europe at the time of the rise, uh, well, of, uh, after the rise of the Nazis. Uh, and we had to flee my native Vienna when I was a very small child because of that. But uh, if we look at history that way, what's so uh, important, first of all, I sometimes joke that when I get depressed, I, I think of the European Middle Ages because they really did look a lot like the Taliban, didn't they? Mm -hmm, yeah. The Inquisition, the Crusades, the witch burnings, you know, whether you slowly stone a woman to death right. or slowly burn her to death, it's exemplary public violence against a a socially disempowered group to, to really terrorize them, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we, we do also begin to see, and this is the most important part of this, and my later books, as you know, all the way from Tomorrow's Children, which is my book on education from K to 12, uh, to my latest book, to what you mentioned, The Real Wealth of Nations, have been okay so what are the interventions? What are the interventions that can have a cascade of systemic effects? And, of course, changing economic systems is one of those key interventions. Mm -hmm. 
just to kind of finish up uh, defining the uh, dominator and, and partnership concept here, uh, one of the real fascinating things for me about it is the way that it can be applied on so many different levels. You already kind of alluded to this, but I think we should go more in depth. I mean, it can be applied uh, to spiritual systems. It can be applied to, to your personal life. Uh, it can be applied to psychology. Uh, and in fact, as we go on to talk about uh, the real wealth of nations and, and the economic systems that you're talking about here, um, how much of the issue is it's because people have been habituated into this dominator system predominantly, I think, right now. And, and you talk a, a bit in the book about it, you really need to change these habit patterns on a psychological level in order to kind of manifest that change on, on a larger social level. Is that a, an accurate way to put that? I think that, uh, well, I wrote a book called The Power of Partnership, which was actually it won the Nautilus Award as the best self-help book uh, of that year. But it's very different from most self-help books because, again, it covers the spectrum of relations, starting with how we relate to ourselves and our intimate uh, relations, our work relations, all the way to our international relations, <laughs> to how we relate to nature, to our spiritual relations. And they're very different, as you point out, depending on the degree of orientation to the partnership or domination side. The problem uh, is that we have really been brought up so much to consider not only the that it's not only the only alternative, but the desirable alternative is the domination system. All the way from many of our, not all, but certainly many of our religious stories, be they Eastern or Western, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, or tribal or, uh, you know, sophisticated, to our fairy tales. Uh, so the changes in consciousness, what you're talking about, are very, very important because as, as your consciousness changes, you also are able to take action, be it in your own life. Uh, and the more you do that, you also begin to understand that there's just so much uh, that you can do uh, in your own life uh, without also working on changing on the conditions uh, that define your possibilities. So you become socially active. And that's really what my work is about, isn't it? That we, it's not an either or, uh, it's a both and. All right, very good. Uh, let me take a moment now to say the time is 9.18. You're listening to the Thursday Morning Report right here on KZYX. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. This morning I'm speaking with Dr. Rianne Eisler. She's the author of The Chalice and the Blade, as well as The Real Wealth of Nation and Works Now uh, for the Center for Partnership Studies. All right, Rianne. So the next question for you then is, why economics? What made you go in that direction? I, I was thinking um, when I contacted you initially that we were going to talk mostly about some of the anthropological work that you've done. Uh, and then I was surprised to see that you've been doing all this, uh, this work in economics now. So what made you decide to take uh, your concepts and go in that direction? Well, if you really look at what can we do, I mean, education certainly is essential and I mean not only formal education, but, you know, uh, the culture around you, etc. Uh, but economics uh, really have a huge effect on human possibilities, don't they? Absolutely. On our options, on what we think is possible or not. 
Uh, so it is one of those interventions with a cascade of systemic effects. And that's what made me decide to look into it. But there's more than that, because I don't have to tell you that present economic systems are imploding. I mean, people are still, it's so funny, people keep talking about going back to normal, but, but mm-hmm. the normal is, is, is not working. Um, we need new norms. And that's what the real wealth of nations is about. And again, it transcends the conventional conversation between capitalism and socialism, because really, if you look at history uh, with an open eye, you see that the two large-scale applications of um, socialism, the the former Soviet Union, and China, I mean, for example, environmental problems galore, right? Mm. Uh, Gaps between haves and have-nots, yes, they did remedy them to some extent, but in China today, uh, about 30 to 40 percent of the population is still abysmally poor. I mean, poor in a in a much more radical sense than what we think of as poverty in the United States. Uh, and if you look at the Middle East, I mean, for goodness sakes, I mean, we're, uh, you know, in other words, religious regimes. I mean, the, the, the poverty is horrific. Mm-hmm. So you really have to start thinking of different ways of looking at the situation that, of course, we need both uh, a market economy and a a government regulation economy, but that's not enough. And so what I write about is going much more deeply and really shifting to what I call a caring economics. And it's funny, you know, when you put caring and economics in the same sentence, you do a double take, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it was uh, it was kind of strange even reading your book at the different tone that it had uh, when talking about economics. And, and it just seemed a lot to me like it was about the intention. Um, you know, why not care? Uh, why do we have this system that's so competitive right now uh, that it's like when people even enter into the realm of money, they're they're already thinking, uh, I think, more about greed, you know, than than helping people out. Everyone seems to be out for them themselves. Uh, so just shifting that intention suddenly opens up, you know, this whole new avenue of thinking. It's, however, putting that intention into practice that my work is really about. But let me let me get back to something because you said competitive. And uh, partnership systems are not just about cooperation. You know, people cooperate all the time in domination systems. I mean, think about it for a minute. Monopolies cooperate, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, terrorists cooperate. Right. In invading armies cooperate. So that's not the difference. And also, I really want to make that very clear, it's not a completely flat organization with no hierarchies. Um, There are hierarchies, but instead of what we are so familiar with, hierarchies of domination, you know, we all know those. I mean, you don't obey orders from above and that's it. I mean, Mm -hmm. you lose your job, you're dead, whatever, right? You get beaten in your family and so on. Uh, There are what I call hierarchies of actualization, where in terms of the title of uh, the chalice and the blade, 
power is not symbolized by the blade, you know, the power to dominate, to take life, uh, but the power of the chalice, the power to give life, to nurture life, to illuminate life. That, uh, in, but you know, we're moving in that direction because you talk. We, we today we hear about power being empowering rather than disempowering. That's the power of the chalice, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's partnership power. But so that's really very important uh, that we have that uh, make that distinction. Uh, the other thing that's very important is that we understand that uh, economic systems uh, don't grow up in a vacuum. They don't just spring up full-blown. They don't spring up full-blown. They really are very different depending on their cultural context, and that's where your intention comes in, Doug, because in domination systems, along with the devaluing and the ranking of men and, quote, masculinity over women and, quote, femininity, anything stereotypically associated with women or the stereotypical feminine, uh, such as caring, nonviolence, right, mm-hmm. is devalued. All right, I want to go back for just a second about uh, the left-right paradigm. Okay. The left-right paradigm. Again, I I had this experience where I was, you know, you, you're inundated, I think most of us are, by modern media. The left-right paradigm is, is given to you as the only option. And uh, I finally, I was thinking about it because it wasn't, you know, that paradigm just wasn't working for me. I was like, something else is going on here. And uh, that was when I, I kind of realized that if I analyzed the, the government as if it was um, an organized crime uh, situation, then I was like, wait, this is what these people do. You know, they have a protection racket, they, they control the currency, they, um, you know, they, they control uh, the drug trade, they sell weapons, they're gun runners, you know, (laughs) it was a perfect description. And I think that falls right in line with being able to, using the dominator, um, Paradigm, the dominator partnership paradigm. You can see, well, this is a this is a domination system. This kind of of mafioso uh, system of economics that seems to me is what's really going on. We're, we're trying to talk even about these ideals of capitalism versus socialism in the left right paradigm. When what's actually happening uh, is something that's more akin to this kind of uh, organized crime system, or you know, I guess on a higher level, you might call it imperialism. Uh, you talked a little bit uh, in the book about how the modern corporation was started. Really, our, our current system is patterned after the corporations that the British Empire started, like the East India Company, that were really in, tools for their imperialism. Uh, so can you just kind of describe that aspect of the, of the dominator system and how much of the current economic system in the world do you think is really driven by this kind of maybe over-masculine over or overtly masculine domination pattern? But let's first of all distinguish between stereotypically masculine and masculine, Mm -hmm. uh, because we really don't know what is inherently male or female because of the socialization that starts the moment even before birth, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, boy, girl. Uh, So I think that what we're really talking about, I mean, there are some characteristics that are stereotypically considered masculine that are wonderful, whether they're in women or men, for example, assertiveness, right? Mm -hmm. Um, 
But if a woman is assertive, you know, I mean, she's terrible, right? But <laughs> not, not, not to me. <laughs> wonderful. I mean, I, I'm, I'm being facetious. I mean, yeah. in the old, in the old, uh, you know, in the old paradigm, in the domination paradigm, she's stepping out of her place, mm-hmm. which is a subservient place, and that's it. I mean, she's castrating, she's ball-breaking, you know, I mean, <laughs> she's not supposed to assert herself, only men are. So what we're talking about here, though, is really, and I love, by the way, your analogy of an organized crime syndicate. Yeah, thanks. Um, the thing about it is that what we're really talking about is to what extent does any institution, including the government, orient to the partnership or domination side? Now, uh, we went through a period, uh, certainly uh, in, in the 19th century when we got all of those laws, uh, you know, labor protection, unions could be formed against enormous resistance, but we got them, didn't we? Yeah. When we were moving to the partnership side, when the government, well, I mean, the laws, for example, um, uh, you know, against uh, racial segregation, uh, these are also government, right? So the government, per se, doesn't have to be anyway. Uh, it depends on where the culture is going at that time. And if you look, for example, at neoliberalism, so-called neoliberalism, it's really dominator economics. I mean, that trickle-down economics, which is really obscene, right. when you think about it. <laughs> it. It's really going back to the old paradigm, the dominator paradigm, where those on bottom are supposed to content themselves with the scraps dropping from the opulent tables of those on top. Mm-hmm. And that's whether that was a king, whether it was a prince, whether it's a sheik, or whether it's a tribal chief. It doesn't matter, does it? Yeah, it that's, that's so true. That... It is not a question of the West by any means. I mean, if you look at, uh, well, just look at uh, Southeast Asia, the Middle East. I mean, hardly, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, these are rigid domination systems. So to get back to what you're talking about, it's our job to really make changes. And one of the most fundamental ways of making change in the economic system is to show that actually a caring economics is not only the right thing to do, the humane thing to do, uh, but that it is also in the long term the sustainable thing to do and also uh, the way that we can have a system where people's human capacities, starting in childhood, get to be developed. Because think about it for a moment, aside from anything else, we are now in the post-industrial era and a lot of the jobs, I mean, we need a whole new way of thinking about economics. A lot of the employment will never come back, not only because of outsourcing, but because of automation, mm-hmm. robotics. And that's uh, artificial intelligence is just around the corner. So let's just now figure out what is productive work. And that's why I'm focusing so much in my book and also as the president of the Center for Partnership Studies on new economic indicators, what I call social wealth indicators, 
that are far more accurate and that answer a simple question. What are the drivers in a society of its social wealth, which is the quality of uh, the life that people lead uh, and the quality of our natural environment? Human capacity development is the key, isn't it? And you don't get that with all the regression to the domination system of cutting teachers, uh, not investing in early childhood education. Uh, uh, but it's very gendered, this approach, because there's always money, isn't there, for the stereotypically masculine uh, wars, weapons, prisons, right? But when it comes to the soft or stereotypically feminine, uh, caring for people's health, child care, there's no money. So we really have to go very deep, don't we, to understand and to make the changes. Mm -hmm. Because studies are very clear that as the status of women rises, so does the general quality of life. Yeah, you talk a little bit in the wealth of nation, in the real wealth of nations about how the economic indicators that we're always sort of, that we're fed, uh, like GDP or, uh, you know, how, how, what percentage has our economy grown in the last year and how important that is. But uh, you talk about how those indicators don't really give us the full picture. A lot of times we're given these statistics, but they don't include uh, human happiness or, you know, the psychological factors that maybe I, if I was happier, I could live with a little less money. Or, and it also does the opposite when disasters strike and people spend money rebuilding from these disasters, then that goes into GDP and is considered economic growth. Um, so do you want to talk about that a little yes, bit? Yes, I'd like to, because if you actually look at GDP, if it weren't so serious, because policymakers uh, use it to make their decisions that affect us all, it would be funny. I mean, right. <laughs> activities that actually harm life that take life, like making cigarettes, for example. It's great for GDP. So are the health costs. So are the funeral costs. They all go into GDP. Uh, an oil spill, as you said, a disaster. In the end, it's great for GDP because the cleanup costs are all on the plus side, right? Right. right. So you have a totally inaccurate measure, but even beyond that, as you mentioned, uh, GDP fails to include, uh, to give really value to the work that accounts the most for human well-being and for human development, the work of caring and caregiving. Uh, in the market economy, that work is very low paid, very devalued, and it's not just supply and demand. It has a lot to do with the underlying devaluation of the stereotypically feminine, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you uh, you mentioned in the book that a plumber, you know, might make fifty dollars an hour, and a and a caregiver makes about ten. Yeah, and we insist that the plumber be trained, right? Right. Because, well, how could we entrust our pipes <laughs> to this person? But we don't insist that all child care workers be trained. Well, that's pathological. Right. It's not logical, uh, and and it is really. We were talking about you know awareness and action, becoming aware of the ridiculous nature. And, and, of course, it, it, the, the GDP doesn't even include this work of caring and caregiving when it's in the household economy. We're told it can't be measured, quantified, but it can be. Uh, I mean, we have now what we call, because groups have insisted on it, okay, mostly women's groups, but mm -hmm. still, uh, 
we have now satellite reports that take into account the value of this work. And that's a project we're working on very, very uh, diligently at the Center for Partnership Studies. And I really want to invite our listeners to go to partnershipway.org and to find out about our Caring Economics campaign, to find out about the social wealth indicators that we are working to develop, to find out about the Alliance for a Caring Economy, about ACE, get your organization to join it, to find out about our leadership training program. This We're talking about a social movement that really transcends the left-right polarity. It's a partnership movement, and one of its most focused goals is to change the economic system uh, completely, because we have to, as I said, we have to redefine what is productive work. And if we're talking about the post-industrial economy, about success, uh, never mind anything else, uh, economists keep telling us that the most important capital is what they call high-quality human capital. Well, that's not just produced in universities. That's produced, uh, we know from neuroscience, very early on. Mm-hmm depending very much on the quality of care children receive. And that's exactly what they're trying to cut now, which is insane. I mean, it's, it's, it's really insane even from the conventional perspective, much less from the perspective of the enormous rethinking that we have to do so that we can move to a partnerist economic system. Mm-hmm. When you think about the amount of money that they're spending on war right now, and then you think about how little amount of money it would take uh, compared to that to to really change our, our relationship uh, with the government and what and you know what's going on, you talk about things like parental leave. I mean, how expensive is that? It, it probably you know for the cost of a couple of uh, F-16s or F-18s. <laughs> How many families could you really help out? Quite a few. So it, it, I hear you when you say that it's just crazy um, the way that um, we're not emphasizing the right things if we're worried about developing uh, human capital in the future. Well, I think that there, you know, we, we, I don't think we can be naive. There is a threat. Uh, there is the rise, for example, of the Islamicist movement. And, uh, you know, if you talk to uh experts on on terrorism, this has very little to do with U.S. policies, contrary to what you read in a lot of the leftist press. Mm. Um, It has simply a lot to do with their ideology, which is the ideology. uh, See, look, I mean, they're still very literal about their scriptures. If we were, uh, you know, we'd still be stoning women and uh, even children if they speak up to their parents, because it's all there in the the Bible, Mm. isn't it? Yeah. But they're still very literal, and they're trying to even go back to being more literal. And, uh, you know, the the mantra there is, kill the infidel. And the West is the biggest, most successful, shall we say, infidel, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a threat out there, and we do need weapons. But having said this, uh, the ridiculous nature of our weaponry, I mean, it's so... Talk about uh, overconsumption here. Right. I mean, it, 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 it doesn't make any sense. Well, I think you know? the United States spends as much on, on weapons as all the rest of the countries in the world put together. So that 
you know, that shows you how, how much we're leaning in that direction. Well, you know, I mean, it, 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 it is an industry that has enormous lobby power. And um, also we've got a mindset that has been cultivated, hasn't it? See, because in domination systems, it's really interesting. Uh, there are only two alternatives if you're really properly socialized to fit into that system. You either dominate or you're dominated. Mm-hmm. So war, the war of the sexes, you know, everything. I mean, ranking of race over race, et cetera, et cetera. They're inevitable. You know, some. You, I mean, of course I'd rather uh, be the dominator than the dominated. Mm-hmm. Because if you're the dominated, you have to manipulate, you have to placate, you know, the stuff that women have been taught to do, right? Right. Uh, So again, we come back to this. See, the the importance of gender, I really want to emphasize this. This has nothing to do with women against men or men against women, as you well know. We're talking about cultures where children grow up in families. Why do you think that fundamentalists, be, be they Eastern or Western, we're not really about, it's not really about religion. I mean, religion can be about being very kind to people, too, um, and nonviolent. It's really about dominator fundamentalism. And for them, the top priority is always getting women back to their, quote, traditional place, which is a code word for subservient, in a, quote, traditional family, which is another code word for a highly punitive, rigidly male-dominated family where children learn early on uh, two things, two vital lessons. One, that it's really painful to question orders, no matter how unjust. And two, that humanity is divided into those on top and those on bottom, those who should dominate and those who should be dominated, starting with that difference, starting with the most fundamental difference in our species between female and male, is automatically equated with either superiority or inferiority, with either being served or serving. And then you can generalize that, can't you, to another race, another ethnicity, another sexual orientation. So that's why for, for dominators, for Hitler, for example... Again, same thing Mm -hmm. for the Nazis. You know, it was supposed to be a Jewish plot, the emancipation of women, right? Uh, Because, and the thing that's so frustrating sometimes uh, is that for so many people who consider themselves progressives, liberals, these are just women's and children's issues. And I don't know why they can't learn the lessons by just looking around them. I mean, what, what, how completely blind can we be, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you don't pay attention to these foundational relations, you're not going to change what's valued or not valued economically. You're not going to change uh, how people act in the world. All right. Well, I have to take a second here to say that it is 942. You're listening to the Thursday Morning Report here on KZYX. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. I'm speaking this morning with Dr. Rianne Eisler. She's the author of The Chalice and the Blade, uh, her most recent book, The Real Wealth of Nations, as well as the president for the Center for Partnership Studies. All right, Rianne, can we get back to the caring economics? I wanted to talk a little bit. We've touched on it, uh, how uh, caregiving is basically left out of the economic map, as you put it in your book. And there are other things, too, that are basically ignored by... um, 
by current economics as it works today. You talk about not just the household economy, the unpaid community economy, as well as the natural economy. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, what I uh, have proposed is what I call a full-spectrum economics. Uh, we, the conventional economic map, whether it's the basis for capitalist or socialist thinking, really focuses, well, it focuses on the market economy, the government economy, to some extent on the illegal economy. But it leaves out the three life-sustaining sectors, the natural economy, the volunteer community economy, and the household economy. Mm-hmm. And as long as we uh, really uh, leave out, again, remember what I said, if you don't look at the whole picture, you can't see the patterns, you can't connect the dots, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first step is that once you do that, then you start thinking, well, again, what are the most important interventions? And one of them is changing how we measure economic health. And by the way, happiness, I have to say, unfortunately, is not a good measure because mm-hmm. people, it, it is so culturally determined. I mean, you can talk to somebody. I remember once reading that people in Bangladesh uh, considered themselves on some kind of study as the happiest in the world. Well, uh, Bangladesh is a, a country of enormous, I mean, it's totally uh, uh, ridiculous. It, from any objective standard, uh, because, for example, uh, in a flash flood in Bangladesh, uh, a lot of women were killed simply because they're not supposed to leave the house Hmm. without a male relative. Right. Okay? I mean, it it, it is very much of a dominator culture, very poor, uh, etc. So we have to be a little bit careful. What are the criteria for happiness? And they're very different culturally. And people can be socialized to be happy even in the worst circumstances. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, But there are uh, 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 criteria that we can use. And one of the main criteria for the development of what we're talking about uh, now and what we're working on, uh, social wealth indicators, is the value of investing in caring for people starting in early childhood and investing in caring for nature. If we start with that as being the drivers for a sound economic system, everything else can then be built on that, you see. Whereas if we don't, uh, it's like quicksand, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and especially as uh, I think we're witnessing more and more how just exactly how unsustainable this system is. So it seems like we better be preparing for something else to replace it with here pretty quickly or else it's just going to get worse and worse, you know. Well, that's what the real wealth of nations is about. That's what caring economics is about. Uh, It it is very unrealistic uh, in a world where... You know, uh, overconsumption is an interesting thing because it's always been the considered the right of those on top. I mean, think about the the, the Oriental potentates, right, and their luxury, mm-hmm. etc., uh, or, or European emperors or what have you. But it's it sort of almost the democratization of overconsumption uh, is what happened in the West, didn't it? And now it's, it's, it's sort of being considered 
that that's everybody, what everybody aspires to. But you cannot sustain an economic system that depends 70%, as we do, on consumption without having overconsumption. Okay? Mm-hmm. And that overconsumption is not only lousy for people, you know, all the junk food and all the uh, uh, discarded electronics that are cluttering up our landfills, not to speak of global warming. Uh, it's just not sustainable. Yeah. And as we see, uh, you know, Chinese and the Indians with huge populations uh, becoming industrialized and starting to consume more and more, uh, it's just not going to be very long before the whole thing collapses, it seems. Well, the Chinese, I mean, the Chinese uh, leader said that it's glorious to be wealthy. And that's an old Chinese tradition. He didn't invent it. I mean, the, the, the communist interlude was just that, an interlude, I mean, the real, you know, the Mao period. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, we're, we're talking about China surpassing the United States as the largest economy as measured by GDP, which means as the economy that consumes the most. And in fact, the Chinese leaders are now trying to switch from their, their, their growth being based on export to their growth being based on consumption internally. Mm. Well, lots of luck. I mean, (laughs) they're going to have a first-class cabin in a sinking ship because the the environment can't sustain this. Right. Well, let's uh, switch, and instead of talking about uh, the, the countries that are causing the problems and having problems, to the ones that you see as successful examples of, of caring economics, you talk a lot about the Nordic nations. So can you describe how their system is different and how it works more in the partnership way, and maybe even a little bit about why you think it's happening there instead of other places in the world? Well, um, I, I, it's very interesting because at the beginning of the 20th century, nations like Sweden, Finland, Norway, they were so poor that there were famines. You know, whole states, Minnesota, right, mm-hmm. got populated by refugees. Right. Uh, but what these uh, nations uh, did is that they started to invest more and more in caring for their people. Today... Uh, they, they invested in human capacity development, I mean, just in a nutshell. Today, they invariably are in the highest ranks, not only of the United Nations Human Development Reports, but of the World Economic Forum's Global Competitiveness Reports. Uh, they have some of the things you talked about, uh, just mentioned. They have certainly have universal health care. They have very high-quality child care. Teachers get paid very well and are highly respected, very different from here. Uh, They have very generous paid parental leave for both mothers and fathers. In fact, if the father doesn't take it in a two, you know, in a a family with a mother and father, um, nobody gets it. So men are motivated (laughs) to take it. Right. Uh, They have very low poverty rates, including, and this is very important for us to pay attention to, very low poverty rates for woman-headed families, because we're always told that that's the problem, and that's not the problem. The problem are our policies, mm-hmm. uh, not how, not what kind of, you know, whether it's woman-headed or man, man-headed or whatever. Uh, they have uh, much more advanced environmental uh, standards, uh, but it didn't happen in a vacuum. And this is really the point. It happened there because they moved more to the partnership side. They have much more 
democracy and equality in both the family and the state. And they had a very strong women's movement. Uh, it's very interesting. I, I mean, uh, we, you know, feminism in, has now become the, the new F word, right? Yeah. But uh, basically, <laughs> um, it, it is through the feminist movement that a lot of uh, this happened because, of course, uh, women uh, do uh, have a lot to do with how their children develop. Uh, men now, as the, see what happened there. They have much more. Let me let me go into configuration. All right. So there's much more uh, democracy and equality in both the family and the state. There's a much more equal partnership between the female and male halves of humanity, and there is also, as I mentioned earlier, a really attempt to leave behind traditions of violence. You know, the first laws against uh, using physical discipline in children, the men's movement to disentangle masculinity from violence, the peace studies. They're all, you've got more of a partnership configuration. They're not ideal, but, uh, hey, they're in better shape, and they've weathered, as a matter of fact, the economic disasters of the last few years much better than we did, um, except for Iceland. But that was because they had a government that decided to really uh, do the banking thing, right. which is a whole you know different story. I mean, the derivatives, okay. Mm-hmm. But, but the, even and this is there, the dominator I, model as well. That, you know, the banksters. <laughs> yeah, the banksters, absolutely. Yeah. But see, we need banks. I mean, it isn't banking. Money is a very good economic invention. Mm-hmm. The question is, how is it used? Uh, is, will it be in a caring economics? As long as, look, it's very unrealistic to expect more caring policies, be it about caring for people, being for the environment, as long as the half of humanity that's stereotypically associated with that soft, you know, caring, caregiving is devalued. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just not going to happen. We're talking about connecting the dots about systems dynamics. So what we're talking about in the Nordic nations is that they have been able to move towards a, but, you know, they don't, they're not socialists. They have a very thriving market economy. They also have government regulations. They often call themselves caring societies. And that's why I chose the term caring. And they've it moved. Is so basic. Right. They've moved from, uh, I, you described a couple of, uh, of, of big cooperatives, too, that they have there. So instead of the, the big, just massive corporation model like we have here, there's actually a lot more uh, employee involvement in running the company, so everybody feels more involved. Well, that's also true of corporations. In, mm-hmm. I mean, in Germany, for example, where I, um, when the Chalice and the Blade was translated into uh, German, the former... Uh, CEO of Volkswagen, uh, Daniel Gödewert, wrote the foreword to the paper edition. Wow. Um, yeah, but they, their boards have labor representatives. Mm-hmm. Look, the corporation, again, you can have an entity called a corporation, which is more likely to take risks because there is not the uh, shareholder liability, okay? So in a way, it can be an entrepreneurial uh, but but if the risks are also tempered by caring, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, but but see the the corporation, if you have uh, adequate um, 
charters for the corporations, and the corporation is a creature of the government. We can we can demand all kinds of things of the corporation. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people realize that that the the corporation and the way that it's all been it's all been created out of the government. So I mean, if we yeah. if we have a caring government and the caring government demands that corporations act in in a certain way, then they're going to have to change. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So that's why I deal with the basics in my work. I mean, what are the conditions that you need to change? Well, one, of course, is economics is about values. What do we value, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and part of my, my approach is always, as I said, to show that caring economics, in, for example, companies, studies show that companies that always appear uh, in the top ranks of the say, the Fortune 500 or the Working Mothers list of the best companies to work for, they have a higher return to shareholders. Well, obviously, people who work for these companies that have more caring policies, they work very hard, don't they? And very intelligently and with less stress Mm -hmm. because they want these companies to do well. You give an example in the book about a company that treats their, I think it was a tech company here in California, that treats their uh, employees so well. I mean, basically, they have, uh, you know, even when you're on at the office, you can take off and, and get a workout or go for a jog if you want to. They have all those services there. They have child care there and health care there. Uh, and that, you know, basically nobody ever quits this company <laughs> because they love I working for them. Yeah, and then we've got about three minutes left here, Rianne, but maybe we can finish up with uh, that notion that you talk about in the book that, that then when you find that corporations and or governments invest in these kinds of things, then they actually, dollar for dollar, end up making more money at the end because they're not paying on the back end for all the mistakes that they've made and all the people that are that are messed up or who have been dominated now and who are now impoverished and unhealthy, et cetera. Can you, can you just talk about the well, dollars and, and the, cents value the, of caring economics? The same is true of government policies, mm-hmm. the back-end costs, which uh, in domination systems, uh, prisons, for example, where, I mean, they're huge. Right. And think of all these people whose lives are ruined, both the victims and the perpetrators. I mean, the whole thing is nuts. Uh, yes, it is much more economically effective to invest in caring for people starting in very early childhood and to invest in caring for our Mother Earth. And I really, again, want to invite the listeners to go to partnershipway.org and uh, think about perhaps becoming uh, partnership leaders, enroll in our leadership online leadership training program, because the changes can only come if we make them happen. Mm -hmm. Well, describe that a little bit. Describe the leadership training program. How are you... I'm trying to make because you know that's an interesting thing to me actually is that how are you a leader in a partnership way you know I mean isn't it almost automatically a dominator thing to try to be a leader oh that's such a big mistake we mm-hmm. shoot down our leaders the whole notion that it's good to be leaderless we mm-hmm. can all be leaders we can all take turns being leaders what we're doing through the leadership training uh, There are two tracks. One is the Caring Economics track, and the other one is the Empowering Women track, and obviously they both go together. Um, But what we're doing is the seventh session online, and these people then go into their communities. We've had people from 12 nations already taking them, going into their communities, making presentations. And I think, you know, if if many of us, 
hundreds and thousands of us start doing this, uh, we can change our economic system because, as you said, the first thing is changing consciousness, that there is another alternative and that we had better really work on it because the old economic systems aren't working. Well, there you have it. Dr. Rianne Eisler, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, I've really appreciated the conversation. I think we could go on for another hour, but I'm afraid we're running out of time. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much for being on the show. And uh, I'll uh, try to get that up on the website as soon as possible. Uh, if not, just send me an email and I'll get a copy to you for sure. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Take Thanks. care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. That was Dr. Rianne Eisler, the author of The Chalice and the Blade and The Real Wealth of Nations, also the president for the Center for Partnership Studies. That is at Partnership Way. Org. The time is now 10 o'clock. You've been listening to the Thursday Morning Report right here on KZYX, 90.7 FM, Philo KZYZ, 91.5 FM, Willits, and Ukiah, 88.1 FM, Fort Bragg. This is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. We're streaming on the web at kzyx.org. Stay tuned in just a few moments for Portraits in Jazz right after Earth and Sky. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'll be back again in two weeks' time. Have a great day. <laughs>